Hello, sponsoring us today are Becky's Brownies. Becky's Brownies, who describe themselves as making gloriously indulgent brownies. Now I know, because I tasted them, I taste them regularly. It's like sinning. I, I, th- I like to think I'm a, hel- I'm a health eater, and I am. I try and avoid sugar completely. It's impossible to avoid Becky's Brownies. It's it's the most insane mouth pleasure I think I experience on a regular basis. Food mouth pleasure, that is. It is oh. They made one the other day, and it had, I think it had a bueno. Yeah, it was a bueno. Uh, is it Nutella? Did Nutella do the bueno? No, Kinder did the bueno. It was Kinder bueno and Nutella, the chocolate spread. They put that together and made a flipping brownie out of it. How would you turn that down? If you're a sugar avoider, like me, how would you turn it down? You don't turn it down. You stick that thing in your mouth, and you enjoy it, and you thank Becky's brownies. <laughs> That's what you do. It flipping kills me. They're a mother and daughter duo. They're based out of Warwickshire. It started in November 2015, and since their launch, they've supplied a gazillion local businesses in Warwickshire. They cater for weddings, Hindus, corporate events, they launched a street food setup and they even moved into their own bakery premise, which is pretty good going since 2015 because everyone loves the flaming brownies. My missus can't get enough of them. They trade regularly at Warwick Market and they attend various food festivals over the year. They launched in November 2016 to celebrate their first birthday. They launched the old uh, salted caramel jars. I say the old like you should know them as well as I do. Mm, more mouth pleasure. They launched those back in November 2016 to celebrate the first birthday but also to raise money for the local charity, 353 Charity, which you guys should be aware of because they uh, they get plugged to podcasts all the time. They're a close friend, um, founded 353, and Becky's Brownies regularly try and support those guys. They are also supporters of the military. Obviously, you can find Becky's Brownies next at the Chilean Spice Festival. On Chilean? That's just my accent and my mumbling. The Chili and Spice Festival, it should have sounded like. The Chili and Spice Festival on the 1st of December in Birmingham. Digbeth Dining Club on the 9th of December in Birmingham. And Warwick Market on the 22nd of December. However, they do catering for events. So if you want that insane, legal, unadulterated, pure mouth pleasure for you and or your guests at whatever then you can get hold of Becky's Brownies, and I strongly suggest you do. Becky'sBrownies.co.uk. B-E-K-I-S is how you spell in Becky's. They're also on Instagram, and they're also on Facebook. Becky'sBrownies.co.uk. Check them out, definitely. Sin once in a while. Live life. I do. Don't tell the doctor. Also sponsors today are Cam Ryder Warwick, who I love. I genuinely, I flipping love, I say I love all the sponsors, you know why, because lucky enough, up to this date, I've known all of them, as in I know the companies, all the organisations, I use them all the time, Cam Rider Warwick, they're around the corner from me, I do my bike training with them, it, uh, it would appear to you that as long as it's taken a long time, it's not, it's just that they're super flexible, and I'm managing to slot my training uh, courses, my training courses, my training days, half days and a few hours years in there, into my flipping hectic schedule. I'm a pain in the backside for Camerader Warwick, but they don't mind. They bend over backwards for me, as they do for other people. Um, so I'm doing, what am I doing with them? I'm doing my, uh, my, oh God, I've got the terminology. My cat one and my cat two, so I can, basically, I'll be able to ride 
a bike of any power yeah so any power any size and to do that there's two different modules you're going to take as in tests so if you're talking car speed you've got two different tests you've got to take and you can proceed those two tests with a number of lessons to get you up to speed to be able to ride safely to be able to pass the test uh you can do it in four five or six um yeah four five or six sessions all together you can do more if you want uh, I doubt you do less because there was no way they'd be able to teach you everything you know. There will be a limit on that. The instructors are super nice guys. When you do your training with Cam Ryder Warwick, when your initial stuff, so let's say you just rocked up, but you never even touched a motorbike in your life. I touched a bike in my life twice before I rocked up there. On those two occasions, I crashed the bike. They were off road. They were off road bikes. When I was younger. They were mates' bike. In fact, the same mate. Two separate occasions. In a few years, two separate bikes. Trying to go up a hill. Didn't give enough power because I was a pussy and uh, it fell over, pardon the language, and it fell over and, um, yeah, I broke the gear lever twice on both bikes randomly the second time. The first time I got away with it, the second time I wasn't impressed. Anyway, apart from that debacle when I was a kid, I haven't touched a bike. So when you rock up with Cam Rider Warwick, they've got their own private area, like a private yard where you go and you get familiarised with a motorbike and you can get up to a certain amount of speed on there, probably 30, 40 mile an hour, do all your gear changing do all your manoeuvring slow and fast so you can get confident on the bike which is what they want anyway before you can get let loose in the road but not just like in the private yard it's secluded some people don't like to be watched by people passers by it's very secluded they're really confident instructors they really understand him whatever age you are whatever kind of test you want to get from cbt just to ride a moped up to um up to yeah if you want to ride a beast like i want to ride i want to ride i'm gonna pass my flaming test first um cam rider warwick uh give them a call they're um they're online cam rider, funny enough they're online cam rider warwick no cam rider.co.uk cam rider warwick on facebook and they're on instagram mike is the gaffer there he is hugely supportive of the military and he will talk the hind legs off a donkey as well that is a positive thing as an instructor because you can apply the information from him you have to apply it from him he just throws it at you he throws the information at you amazing guy and now uh, the other instructors are amazing now and they've got a nice new fleet of bikes so you look the dogs nads as well when you're going out if that's what you want to look like if that's what you look like uh if you don't want to look like that you don't have to but the nice bikes either way can ride a warwick uh facebook can ride a warwick on uh instagram and uh on to our next sponsors they are Team Rubicon. Team Rubicon are a disaster response charity. However, I say however, like, no, yeah. They're, uh, it's not however. It's the wrong word leading to that. Disaster response charity. And they are formed predominantly of ex-military volunteers. There are civilian volunteers as well. Everyone can volunteer. Anyone can volunteer, but they're predominantly ex-military volunteers just because they're the kind of people that um, are good at or likely to be very good at um, responding positively in hostile environments, like the kind you will find where disasters have hit, funny enough. Uh, right now, they are out in Palu, Indonesia. There was an earthquake there recently, as you well know, and it was uh, and it was a tsunami went on. Obviously, those two go hand in hand, which is absolutely crap for the people who are affected in those countries when it happens. Earth cracking apart, and then getting smashed by gazillions of gallons of water, seawater, the biggest waves you've ever seen. He got absolutely hammered out there. Thousands of people are unaccounted for. They know that over 2,000 people are now dead, um, with 83,000 people displaced from their homes. 
if their homes even exist anymore. To add to the drama of these people trying to get back on their feet, those survivors out there who are suffering the most, monsoon season is now approaching and more people are going to die without assistance. There's almost half a million children at risk having been affected by the disaster. They're in dire straits. And Team Rubicon are one of the few international NGOs that have been invited by the Indonesian authorities to provide support. But they can only stay in Indonesia as long as the funding allows. Team Rubicon need your help today to be able to carry on helping those people out there. That's the people of Palu. They are in desperate need of water, food and shelter to get back on their feet before the monsoon season hits. I mean, yeah, half a million kids. Half a million kids have been affected by the earthquake, by the tsunami. And uh, I don't know about you, but that does not fill me with joy knowing that there's a monsoon season approaching. So anything you can do to help, you can go to teamrubiconuk.org if you want to get more information or if you think you're able to donate. But also, in line with that, if you're the kind of person that would look at volunteering for Team Rubicon, they will help you do all the training and everything you need to be able to respond to these disasters should they need you. They will call on you. They need volunteers as well as they need uh, financial support and other support. TeamRubiconUK.org Finally, sponsors today are Westway Nissan. Westway Nissan, the largest Nissan dealership in the UK, uh, not only selling cars, but helping out service personnel and veterans through supporting char- supporting military charities and organisations and um, providing employment where they can. Westway Nissan will help you out if you're ex-military and you're looking for work. Maybe you just need a bit of advice on your career. Maybe you're getting out and you just want to know, just, need, just ain't got a flipping clue going into Civvy Street. Give Westway a call. The MD is ex-military and he will bend over backwards to help you where he can. I know he will because I know him personally and he's a superb guy. He also tries to help out ex-military or even if he's still serving actually with a providing up to a 20% discount off vehicles that you purchase from Westway. They've got new and used cars or all sorts of cars and vans and 4x4s all sorts of things and they also do private and commercial deals so you can get on to them and get whatever you want nissan notes up to the gtr to the navaras you know the score nissan's are on the ball really nice cars really nice vehicles and the showrooms are stunning even just this is nice you walk into a westway nissan dealership it's a shiny floor just shiny things everywhere but it's not a jewellery shop, and you're not with your missus. It's a car shop, and you're a man. You might be a woman, and that's fine too, because you're allowed to like cars. So if you're thinking about getting a new used car, you can save yourself a ton of cash at Westway, and they're discount for ex-military. UK. They're also squared away to social media. Not squared away, it's always squared away. They're all over it. Twitter and Instagram. Westway Nissan. Funny enough, go and take a look. UK. Or check out one of the dealerships all over the country. Thank you. My guest today is a former dentist with the British Army. He was well, he played rugby at a very high level and was serving, and has become um, stayed involved with rugby after he left. He's also one of the founders of Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation who uh, run events to raise money for military charities, and. Um, Lastly, he is rowing the Atlantic, the 3,000-mile Talisker Whiskey, Whiskey Challenge. There's only 28 teams, around about 28 teams a year do this. There's more people have been in space than have managed to row the Atlantic. And this and that there 
is one of the people attempting to do it next year. Um, we spoke about all sorts. We spoke about that stuff and also randomly came out the Brexit. H-Hour with Roy Dixon. Enjoy. Rolling bars, yeah? Thank you for your time, Roy Dixon. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. <laughs> we, were, we were talking before the uh, we were talking before the podcast, before we went live, about so mutual friend Mike. Obviously, I suspect Mike Volance is a lot older of a friend to you than he is to me. <laughs> what about, how long have I known him for? Oh, I met him at the Conrad's ride. He was saying oh, yes. Right, yeah, he was saying yeah. yesterday. Let's pull that mic a bit closer for me. Yes, he was saying yesterday that I didn't realise that you and him. It was with you that he, he thought the idea for a rugby for heroes. Yes. I'd, on a uh, on a train the way back from somewhere. It was two occasions. Um, one was we went to um, the Rugby for Heroes game, the first one, which was about 12 years ago at Twickenham. Yeah. And coming back from that, you think, well, why didn't every club in the land just have one day where every, they just do something on that day to raise um, raise money for Rugby for Heroes? And said, well, yeah, this was a rugby game, so you know you could have a raffle afterwards or perhaps the profits from the bar something like that of course chatting to mike that developed into a uh, well we could have a tournament and then it became a festival and then it became a music festival and it became a beer festival and so it's grown and grown into the event that um, we know and love that um you know had the last one this year well, so when was the first one 2010 um the first one would have been um, 10 years ago so 2009 i think it was okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm, i've missed them all i'm gutted i only came to warwick in well, last year, really, I started frequenting it just, uh, um, what year are we in? 2016. Yeah, 2016 started coming up, and I moved you last year, um, and then discovered Old Lemontonians. So how how were you involved? Were you involved with Old Lemontonians RSC already? Yes, again, it's a slightly tenuous link, because I was at Warwick School, so mm. I'm a, technically an Old Warwickian. But my brother played for Old Lemingtonian. So when I came back from um, yeah, weekends away from the army and Clive had stopped playing first team, um, I thought, well, let's have a game together. So we'd go and play for OL's thirds together and um, end up having a few beers. And then I started playing for the vets at, at Old Lemingtonians and then the threes. So, you know, just grew and grew and ended up that I was um, you know, chairman of rugby for um, a couple of years. Oh, uh, So got heavily see, involved. See names up on the board there. Uh, sadly not, no. Chairman of Rugby doesn't get his name on the board. <laughs> I just take all the glory for when we played well. <laughs> Can't the chairman change that? <laughs> well, we did quite well. We did the, we did the Shield and won the Warwickshire Shield and got promoted in, in my time. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, they just started up. Uh, I have not heard of it before or a, a, any other club. The Mixed Abilities team. I've seen that. That's fantastic, isn't it? I was there for the first game. Yeah. Uh, what was the... There's the yeah, the other patrons dinner, and on the same yeah. day they had the mixed abilities. Honestly, it's just I thought I thought it was amazing. It's just um, it's uh, it's also, also obviously awesome for a club. But it's to me, it's kind of a sign of how much society is moving forward with things like that, um, which was which was really good. I, I think it's brilliant just getting people out there. You know, there's a sheer joy in running with the ball. Not mm. I did much enough from the front row, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's um, I played rugby since I was eleven. So my last game was at Rugby Heroes in May. So that's what nearly forty-five years. Your last game was May just gone. Yeah, yeah. 
Jesus. I retired at the age of 26, I think. I <laughs> <laughs> your prime, then. <laughs> I, I kept... I, I, popped my sh- I popped my shoulder once. We, it was the stupidest thing. Much like yourself, I was going home at the weekends back to Wales, where I lived at the time. And my... Uh, I, 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 live, I grew up in the Dulles Valley, so, you know, sort of the, the southernmost valley in uh, in south you know, one of the southernmost valleys in south wales sort of nearest to the coast so you know the further n- further into the valleys you go the more rough things become dollar's valley isn't you know that that, mm. that that bad but it's it's by no means stretching imagination uh normal sort of town living <laughs> <laughs> and the parents house even even now it's it's about flipping it 30 yards from the pitch Brilliant. you know 20 25 yards to the change room so i i'd go out, come back on a friday late from the army i get i go out get drunk on the friday night and then saturday there'd be a knock knock at the door to my dad sean uh, can you come and play and fucking drag it bit, fucking hell. <laughs> you know if i didn't have my boots i'd give me a pair of boots oh, you always find boots <laughs> i know yeah <laughs> and and then i uh, go and play and this and one of the matches it was um i mean it's typical you know uh, uh, club rugby valley club rugby and uh n- not high in the division at the time and we were do you, uh, do you ever have it when you were playing when you were younger where if the other team was short of players you'd give them a player Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I remember those kids. We did that as adults, and I went to tackle one of the opposite team who was our player playing for them because they were short. And like, I fucking popped my shoulder <laughs> against one of my own players on their side. But then after that, I just popped every time. It was oh, if I was tackling on my left side, it just pop. Used to come out my sleep a half hour. It was a yeah, nightmare. Right. So I, I retired. I tried to come out of retirement two years later, and um, I, I popped in my first training session. And yeah, I want to get back into it. I miss it. Oh, it's been a great game. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, playing has been at all levels you know it was a great part of my, my army career and um, even afterwards we kept it going so what level did you play to in the, in the army I played for the army um, in BOR and um, and played for the army vets BOR British Army of the Rhine oh so um, you know I played there in fact the Olympic Stadium in Berlin played for BOR against RAF Germany really? what was the score Oh, we won. I can't remember exactly because it led on to a few beers afterwards. But <laughs> but it was one of the highlights, you know, lining up um, in the Olympic Stadium. The band of Royal Fusiliers playing the national anthem. You all stood there about to go out and play a game of rugby. What year was this? That would have been 1989, uh, something like that, yeah. 88, 89? Yeah. Goodness me. That, that is amazing. Especially back then. With it, it, wasn't, it was still a bit... Um, cold. <laughs> the wall was still in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah the wall was still there. So, going back to rugby for heroes, tell me about the. So, what, how did it come come about then? The idea of rugby for heroes on this train. What what match were you watching in in London that Mike was talking about? There was the, it was a rugby for heroes game. There was a rugby for heroes side that had Delario and um, uh, Greenwood in and people like that, mm-hmm. and that's what sort of started it. You know, why, why, why don't we all do it? You know, why why just not rugby? Why not cricket? Why not football? And say so Mike uh, ran with it, and then we said, "Well, let's have a tournament." So it became a tens tournament. So we got the um, the army vets to come up, and um, and they came up a couple of years ago, and they're they're quite quite a Fijian element now, and they're bloody strong, <laughs> they're yeah. stronger than I played for anyway. So the rugby are uh, the army vets. Are they are they uh, are they do they have to have played for the army team? No, we we did it such that it was it started off uh, when Army Vets Rugby first got playing, which was over thirty five. It was sort of um, a bunch of majors and colonels and brigadiers who thought, well, let's have a let's have a bit of a run out. And then um, we used to play the RAF, who took it quite seriously. 
and um, <coughs> so we changed all that. So our first game was down at Staines, and we got a right pasting. Uh, then after that, it slowly picked up, and then in my last couple of years, I played Family Vets for seven years. We we didn't lose a game for a couple of years. Oh, really? So, um, but it was tough. I mean, it was playing. It was playing really good rugby, and it was really competitive rugby. And we got started playing at Nella Hall, you know, before the Army Navy game. We were the first team to play there, mm-hmm. and it was bloody good rugby. You know, playing with your mates, your peer group. How are you training? You have to be from all over the country. How are you training? Around how often? How were you, I should say? Uh, we always used to play for unit side, but we used to try and get, get a fixture a month, so we'd all get together. Oh, while he was still serving. I do yeah. apologise, I do apologise. Yeah. Right, got you. Yeah, 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 got you. There's, um, there's another side, not another side, different, but they're, uh, they sound a bit like the Mavericks, actually. I might be wrong. you have to explain the Mavericks in a minute. But they're, um, they're called the Military Nomads. Have you heard of these guys? I haven't heard of them, no. But, it's a, it's a, uh, they, exist on, they exist on Facebook only, but it's all ex-military guys who play rugby. And it, it started off about two years ago, and it it but it's it's literally right, fellas. Um, I I can't remember the name of the guy who organises it. I've not gone and played yet. Uh, right, fellas. Uh, on the X date of whatever month, we've got a game against, um, and there'll be some random rugby club somewhere, and they're gonna they're gonna raise money tonight. To, who who can get there? <laughs> Well, that's, <laughs> that's it. Fifteen people turn up on the day randomly. Well, maybe hopefully more than fifty thousand subs. They haven't ever met or played. Maybe some of them met, and they just crack up straight onto the pitch in like classic old school, just just back of a five well, packet. Oh. My first game for the army vets. I turned up. Oh, that's good. We got fifteen now. You played prop before? <laughs> no. <laughs> what position were you? Hooker. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. You've lost some weight then, have you? I've yeah, lost a bit of weight recently, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was quick, I was quick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool. Um, Mavericks, tell me about the Mavericks. Um, in 2003, the Army Vets, who were an over-35s team, they went to Sydney. I just left the Army by them. They went to Sydney and they won the um, the World Masters uh, rugby competition. And whilst they were there, they noticed there was another over-45s tournament. Mm-hmm. So you go on um, to about 2011. I was chatting to my friend Ian Davis, and he said, "Well, you know, 2013, the World Masters is in um, in Turin. Why don't we get an over 45s team together?" So we hunted around and we got a few of our old mates together, and we started the Mavericks team, based as a warm-up game. So that so we were an over 45s team playing vets rugby. So we went along. We played at the Rugby Heroes tournament at OLs. We went to Turin. Um, there was um, quite a strong Australian team there, two ex-Wallabies and one ex-Italian international. A Russian team, which were just brilliant. They, they <laughs> get onto them later. And a couple of Italian teams. And so you play through, you had a group competition to go through various <coughs> rules. We got to the final. Now, we had a team of 17. That did include the bus driver sort of thing. And um, in the final, we lost two players with snapped Achilles. Because playing rugby in Turin in August is tough. Uh, it's bloody hot, and um, we lost five nil in the final. So we got silver medals in the over forty fives, and the army masters is what the vets have become. They were playing in the over thirty fives, and they, they ran away with that. So it was great to go along and play. And the actual world masters games is the most brilliant tournament. Why is that? It, just everyone's together. You know, the parade through Turin was just fantastic. I think when they had the Olympics there, there were something like six and a half thousand athletes. There were fourteen thousand when we went. Oh, really? Yeah, just all the different sports and everything else. And everyone joined up for the parade. Oh, brilliant. So you had the Russian... I mean, it was classic Italian organisation on the finals day. Lack of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, brewery, piss up, you know, sort of thing. It was 
there were four teams <coughs> in the final playing at the, 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 all this, and there was one pump serving sl fizzy beer slowly but luckily because we knew the Russians and we were straight into the vodka and raw fish so that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were they like drinking the Russians very good yeah good, very good, good at drinking were they good at being drunk yeah, well, they 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 knew the rules as well. They 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 the rules of the tournament because it was, some of the games were supposed to be played in golden oldies. We didn't want to do that, but some of them were. And if you what? get sent off, you can be replaced. What do you mean in golden oldies? What do you mean? It's an over forty-five sort of ruling, so you know it, it, it's less contact and it's supposed to keep players going. We didn't want to play that, so we against the Australians. We agreed to play normal rugby, but against the Russians, telling them to play golden oldies rugby, so it's a different set of rules to play. Um, but if you get sent off, you can be replaced. Mm -hmm. So the Russians hospitalised two Australians, got sent off, and they brought they brought Ivor came back on again. <laughs> you know, the plane came back on. So, and they they were a bit miffed. They didn't get through to the the final. But it was great. They came out wearing the old um, CCCP shirts and everything else, oh, the old brilliant. Soviet Union ones, and it was um, it was good fun. And a lot of them were ex forces because a lot of the rugby played in Russia at the time was um, military teams. So mm -hmm. we had a good chat with them. How? Uh, how are the how do they change the rules for the golden oldies to reduce the contact? Um, there's less tackling. There's certain ages. I mean, if you play it properly, you can wear different coloured shorts and things. They wouldn't have that. But for example, you can't. Um, there's kickings limited, so um, you can't. From the, there's got to be certain, the scrum half has to pass off the back of the scrum. He can't run into someone. What about tackle limits? So is it how do they limit the tackles? So after five or six tackles, then they, what is it? Turnover ball or something. It carried on. It was, it was normal rugby as you know it, but it was yeah. just slightly different um, laws mm. the way the game was played and the way they kept it going again. Mm. So the scrums were it weren't um, proper contact ones; they were uncontested and things oh, like okay. that. Yeah, okay. I was try I'm trying to remember the figure, the pounds per square inch that the, the front line of, of a of a professional, um, okay. uh, the front row of professional team will take on their shoulders. Huge. I mean, in our day, they used to like, and now they have this sort of crouch, uh, engage and bind or set. We used to almost run Smash. at each other, you know, and you'd always, you'd always just like, right, you know, you've got to take your pace, and you've got to, oh, sorry, <laughs> just demonstrating, you've got to hit them really hard. <laughs> yeah. I was, a, I was a, when I was at school rugby, I was a flanker, sorry, I was on the, I was in a scrum, but I was just on the side, I wasn't taking any, any other impact, no thank you. I was tall and skinny, so I, I had, uh, yeah, tall, skinny and quick. But the the joy of the front row when we yeah, when we used to play it was you were competing against one man sort of thing. So there was a scrum. You three went in together. You were against your man, and you had to be better than him both physically and sort of mentally. You know, you had to get you had to win your own ball. You could attack him. You wanted to make his game difficult. And that one on one contact was just brilliant. I've never really understood the the front row of the of the the scrum oh. the pro I, I, as in the battle. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, if you're not a, a rugby player. You know, you see that you're just going against smash them, trying to push each other back and try to get the ball out. But then, from my perspective, and I'm not an experienced rugby player by no means. You know, I've played for years up until I was mid twenties, but I'm 37 now. You know, there's a lot more more experienced people than me, far more experienced. But from my perspective, I know there's more goes on, so I know there's all these little tiny battles I could never comprehend. Cause I'd never, I'd never be a prop for his. I just, but, so I don't understand. You could it. be a ref with that sort of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that bland, that sort of vague. Yeah, I'm sure that's not right. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's a good point actually, because 
when you get the in the scrums in in the professional rugby and you're watching it, you think I I don't understand how the how did the ref decide who went down when there's when there's cla- claps in the scrum you know uh, Wales get fi- uh, penalised for claps in the scrum how the, I don't they're always doing it Wales I no. don't <laughs> <laughs> I walk in I, I, I think it, it, it's if you look at foot position and, and, and I always say look at the elbow because it has to be a long bind okay and that's what he's doing if you then bend I'm showing you you've got to have a long bind you've got to have a long bind but if your elbow is then going down and you're bending you know, bending your elbow down towards the ground that is when you're starting to collapse the scrum right so it, it's the law you could have a long bind on it yeah on the, on the, outs, the props on the outside yeah I didn't know that I just learnt okay <laughs> and that's what the ref will look at that's what they should look at, but they tend to look at the, the touch charge from the side of the call, you know, they look at his feet. And if someone slips back, if someone slips back and they go, they hit the deck flat, that's usually mean their feet have gone. But if they collapse in a heap, they're usually backs bent. They're in the wrong position, so they're collapsing the scrum. It's all about getting your back flat and keeping the, the right body angles. Who has the best leverage for trying to collapse a scrum, inside or the outside? Uh, yeah, uh, um, loose head or tight head? Inside the outside, just fucking centers. Uh, loose head or tight head? Uh, the way I we used to play it was tight head was always the attacking um, prop forward. So when you lined up, he would lead in slightly first, so he'd then be have more contact with the hooker because he wanted to make the hooker life more difficult by binding onto him. And you want to separate away the um, the loose head, who is his support. The loose head you know, is in a quite an awkward position because he's only got one person to bind on, so he's got to be a strong boy. The tight head gets in and wants to separate those two. Because I go into a scrum, I'm going to, you know, well, we used to hook and they're trying to bring it back in now. But you stand on one foot, you know, when you hook the ball. Mm. So you need you need prop to support you. And you've got faith that props to support you. So if he's under pressure and someone's forcing us apart so that our arms are further I apart. I see. Then you put a lot of weight onto the hooker. And then, so that hook goes, having then his props forced move. apart, yeah. less balance, less power. And then you can't, it's difficult to lift your foot to move. <sighs> and the other way to do it is what I used to do is go straight across into the hooker and then just drop your shoulder down. So it's pushing on the back of their neck. So basically, so they're pushing their head down a bit. So then if they try and move their knee, they often knee themselves in the face. They're sneaky buggers, aren't they? I'm learning, the, I'm learning <laughs> the black art of propping you in the front row anyway. Ah, it's making sense now. I see. I'll be looking for that straight arm on the next, on the next uh, England yeah, match. Look, look at the elbow. It's pointing <laughs> the elbow. Look what that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have learned something there. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. So rugby heroes on the train way back. Uh, we did um, did the Mavericks. I can't believe the last game was in May. Who did you play in May? Um, it was the rugby heroes tournament. So I was playing for OLs. We had a couple of teams, yeah. and I was playing in the vets tens. And um, must be knackered. Well, not really. I've, 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 cause, cause, well, we're going to chat about later. I'm assuming you're as unfit. <laughs> I'm probably fitter now since the last 18 months. I have been about 20 years. But yeah. um, I missed the first game because my father went along to, yeah. to watch and he was stood there and he's had you know, one or two health issues lately. And they, they did a two-minute silence, which is something we've always insisted on. You know, you have an act of remembrance and, you know, and you, we will remember them. I think very powerful. And all the players line up on the pitch, both on the... Saturday and when the minis and juniors on the Sunday and so everyone knows why you're there and I think that's been really good um, but they, this year they had a cannon at the start and the beginning of the two minute silence so the cannon goes off start two minute silence cannon goes off it's like the end, end of the two minute silence at that precise moment my father fainted mm-hmm. as if he'd been shot by the cannon so everyone stood there and almost <laughs> stood, 
Michael's done so. And again, sort of, so I did miss a game because of sorting out far that sort of thing. But it was the timing was absolutely impeccable. Yeah. But we played um, a side called Fijian Knights, who were yeah they were quite tough. So it was, yeah. it was that moment I thought yes that was probably about the right time to uh, to stop. Yeah. <laughs> the um, the who 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 provided the cannons? Where are they from? Um, yeah, a chap called Ian Lowe, um, ex-Remy officer. He's, I've met him. Yeah, I'm a big old unit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's, he's got a sort of company yeah. that does this sort of thing, and he brought a, a few um, a scimitar along and a drops vehicle, I think. Yeah, I yeah, I've met him. De- interesting guy. Interesting guy. Um, yeah, so we're on the subject of fitness there. I was assuming you're unfit. I, I didn't. I know I insinuated that by saying <laughs> he must have been knackered playing tens. I remember knackering tens while sevens was worse though, but. Uh, I immediately regretted saying that because you're obviously doing uh, flip. The, you're the third person I've had on uh, randomly, right? The third person I've had on this is doing that. Who's doing that challenge? And um, I, I randomly, I I can't understand why one person, let alone three different people I know, would want to do it. The three thousand mile task of whiskey challenge. What? Oh, how yes. on earth? Uh, how old are you now? Fifty-seven. <laughs> what are you doing, you madman? <laughs> why are you doing? Why? Go on, tell me about the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> this all started you're a, right you're a dentist you're a professional in, 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 yeah. professional individual you, you should know better <laughs> you retired from rugby for a reason in me <laughs> that's a concern rowing no <laughs> it, it all start, I mean it goes back again um, Ian Chamine, he swam the he's done various other challenges he's done the Mongolian rally where you've got to take a one litre car who's this sorry uh, Ian Davis okay uh, yep, yep. ASM of the Remy um, driving you know, out to uh, <coughs> Mongolia and that sort of thing and he swam the channel and he was on about rowing the Atlantic. So if someone mentioned you rowing the Atlantic, well, you give him a damn good ignoring. Yeah. And he was sort of going on. And I was at a stage where I'm yeah, looking, I need, I need to do something now sort of thing. You know, things in life change and you, you want to sort of find something to um, to do. And as it was, we all went on holiday. We took a lodge up in Ullapool, about nine of us, all um, ex-army vets, rugby players sort of thing. And uh, all got on well. And by, by strange coincidence, by the time we'd finished the um, the trip to the... Glenmorangie Distillery. I went to bed that night thinking, do you know, I think I've just agreed to row the Atlantic. <laughs> a vague recollection of a conversation. <laughs> but, I mean, to be fair, you were given a, a couple of days, well, a couple of months to say, look, have a think about it if it appeals to you. And I started thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, I can do this. You know, so the fitness side, I mean, I, there were two things I had to get sorted out. One was get um, clearance from my um, cardiac consultant. Um, sort of heart issue which <laughs> gets in the way and then was sort out make sure I can get a locum for work for three months did those two said right yeah let's do it so um, that was May last year so I've been training then I've lost two and a half stone in weight I've got my own concept two rower at home which I, I love dearly and two and a half two and a half million metres on it so far Glenn, Glenn Sadler one of the guys who came on who's doing it he's, he's off on this you're off on next year's one aren't yeah. you he's off on the, I think he flies on I think he flies on Friday. I think he flies now. Yeah, we yeah. went out. We went out last year to see the start of the race. Oh right, yeah. I think he flies Friday, which can't come to the event. But he was he was saying that um, I don't know if you agree or not. That those rowers are harder than rowing, like proper rowing on the sea. He, he, that's, that's he, I, I think one of the problems is well, not problems. One of the good things about it is you push yourselves all the time because you have in front of you the dial and mm. it's got all the numbers on. You know what you've done before, and you don't want to get you, know, you don't want to go below that all the time. So all the time. You're pushing yourself, so you don't have an easy session 
on that. And if you're at sea and we've done a bit of coastal rocks, I didn't, I couldn't row 18 months ago. <laughs> never been on a rowing, yeah. rowing machine at all. So he's done a bit of that. And if you do go in the river, you know, you'll have the tide or currents with you, you know, um, a wind or anything like that, that has an impact on you know, good and bad on the rowing. So sometimes, you know, you, but with all training, you <coughs> want to get beyond what you want to do so that um, rowing, the, the two hours rowing bit, two hours on, two hours off is the easy bit. So you always push yourself. So the concepts, you always make that difficult because you want to do better all the time. So when I look back to times I was doing a year ago, say for a half marathon, you know, so I proved that by five minutes. And I reckon I can do that by another 10 before, before I go next year. Mm. Mm. I can row a half marathon quick and I can run one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how, so what kind of training do you do on the rower then? How are you setting yourself, how, what kind of preparation are you doing for the, for the, 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 the sort of the endurance aspect of it? Because, yeah, what, what, in fact, let's go back. On that two hours on, two hours off, you're looking at what you're doing for what? How, how big is the team? Four of us. So you're looking at doing it in 30 days-ish? We're being, we're being slightly generous at 45. Like, okay. Because okay. you, you don't know. I mean, the, the world record's 29. Yeah. And as a boat, we gave them 80 years, so we probably won't be challenging for that one. <laughs> and then they, and last year's race was phenomenally quick because of the, everyone had <coughs> the right sort of wins. So you don't quite know what you're going to get. So if you're realistic, 45 days, that's our, our target. But I, I hope we do better than that. Strokes per minute. What are you looking at? On the erg, averaging twenty two. So you're setting up the erg to do yeah, to keep going. Good endurance paces. Two ten is your split for five hundred meters. So it's all you split into the language straight away, don't you? <laughs> and then yeah. do twenty two strokes per minute. So it's long, generous strokes. Still a fair pace, though. Yeah. Still a fair. Do you when the uh, when the tide is going with you? And your so if it's on splits per what five hundred meters or whatever is yeah. it, that you're working out that's on the uh, yeah, yeah is is that a, oh, on the rower yeah how will you will you measure it in the same way on the on the when you're on the ocean or not um, you won't do it you won't be doing it at that sort of pace what you'll do on there is you'll be looking at um, the GPS plot per thing but what you don't want to do is you're two on two off we did we did so many nautical miles you only did so many you you, you want to be yeah. uh, you know quite generous I think with that otherwise how do you get around that then how do you avoid that uh, a, we're going to swap over teams all the time. Yeah. So they'll be um, um, doing that. And then we've decided that you know, changeover is going to be quite slick. You want to do that as quickly as you can. Yeah. You know, so, but at six o'clock, there's a slight pause. And anyone's got any gripes about what happened yesterday, in the last 24 hours, you've got to say it then. Otherwise, that's it. Done. Put to bed. You can't bring it up anymore. So um, that's a way of just getting things in the open. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. three of us have known each other over 30 years. Um, play rugby together you know that BOR side and the Ellis Cup and competitions like that so we can have that chat Ian Donnelly's newer to the team but he's, he knows he knows as well and he's been training with us now so um, you know you've got to be able to have that chat otherwise you're going to have a real problem yeah it's vital isn't it that, that, that psychological aspect of it I mean I know of a person <coughs> who shall remain unnamed and uh, and uh, he or she was going out to row with there was a member of the team who um, who it came about that when they were out doing the their training rows, this member of the team was not cut out mentally to um, to mm. be able to crack on with it, and it, it resulted in an absolute nightmare. It's not an overnight training row, a bit of a nightmare, and um, so that the team ceased to exist before they even got to the start line because uh, 
because this is this is safety aspect to it as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, like it's a, it must be a very very isolating exper- isolated experience, very very lonely almost experience uh, to go and do that kind of thing for that long with the same people. I would think I would think that the because you're constantly active, either active or sleeping out, you know, or sleeping, that that probably makes it a little bit easier to cope with. But by no You've means, you've got a routine, ideally. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. but that's an idea. Well, sometimes if the wind is too strong, we can't row against it. We're all going to be cooped up in cabins, so that that'll be um, a bit of a challenge, I think. But um, yeah, because you've got the routine, you've got to stick to that. You'll have your, you know, like you'll have your SOPs, how to deal with the day. You've got to eat, drink, and sort yourself out. And looking after your body is a really, really important part of it. So, at the end of each row, you don't go and train to your DOS bag. You've got to sort out, get yourself dried off, creamed up. You know, look, get rid of all the salt and stuff because that, you know, you can get some really bad injuries and, and that sort of thing from that constant bathing in salt. So, you've got to look after your body you've got to feed yourself well hydrate yourself all the time and you've got to keep doing you can't take any shortcuts because this is a you know big endurance event and you'll get found out if you do mm. i was listening to a podcast with uh the guy who's just swam the uk what's his name edwards i can't remember reese edwards oh possibly yeah he just he swam around the uk non-stop like in the water and he was saying that with, with the salt water the, the impact of the salt water on the body and on his, his tongue, t- his tongue yeah. yeah. Did you? Look, yeah, his tongue started rolling. Goodness me! Did you see the pictures of him? He had all that big scarring around his neck because basically that's where his, his suit came up to. And instead of having a proper one that was linked into the helmet, he had a seam, and that then rubbed as he was swimming all the helmet. time. No, no, you can get it sort of. You know, there's wetsuits that link up. You know, as, as a hood on it. So oh, put, sorry, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's part of it. So he had a separate hat. And so he had a seam around the back of his neck, and you could see this raw mark. Oh, man. So that's one of the problems. See, any any seams, you can get chafing all the time. So that's why a lot of the rowers, you know, once they get out of a public shot, um, row naked, because that stops any problems with that. Any, any they seams. do what naked? Row naked. When they're doing the... Yeah. The challenge? Yeah. So, oh, what I, was gonna, I was about to say, your body must change over over that period of time. That, that what you just said, going naked, would alleviate the problems of having fitting clothing when you start <laughs> to not fit in sort of halfway through when you've lost a lot of weight and you put on you, weight. On average, you'll lose about twenty percent of your body weight. <sighs> so there'll be a good bit about you know about a year's time when I can start eating everything I see so that I can pile on weight so I can lose it on the trip. Uh, you have to st- stock up a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, when uh, do you, have you only got one cabin on the boat? Have you got a boat two. yet? Yeah, I've got a boat yet. We're, negoti- we're negotiating about two, actually. So, oh, yeah. yeah, that's our top priority because that makes it all slightly more real. We've all now started, um, you know, done the entry form, so we've got our names on the, um, the Atlantic Campaigns website now. So we're up there. So it's it's becoming real. Well, that's good. Well, I'll, I can I'll put you under Glynn. I'll put you under Glynn as well. Yeah, yeah. Because they've right. obviously got a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and they won't be needing next year, I don't imagine. So no, yeah, yeah. Tell me about um. Tell me about uh, being a dentist in the army. Oh no, in the military. I've never like, like the only time I've ever dealt with a dentist in the military is having my teeth done. I hate the dentist. That's like right. generally speaking, because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look after my teeth when I was a kid. But uh, it fascinates me. The whole there's two sides to the the there's a few sides to the military. But you got um, it's always fascinated me in the the professional yeah the professional um job roles in the military from yeah. from doctors so you sort don't take offense to this but it you, you you sort of you're almost operating like a civvy for most of it 
for, for a lot of the time and that's you know as in well look like healthcare kind of thing yeah, you know yeah, but you're yeah. very much part of the military machine and, and you have you know and, and well you're military it's always it's always um, fascinating me sort of balance how how what kind of experience it is for you being in the military as opposed to other people because it's, it's just I don't know it's always yeah explain explain explain, explain uh, it to me it probably goes back to when I you know, as a student you look about what can you do next mm-hmm. now dad dad has been in the army he was um, reamy then ordnance school so I uh, the, been around army camps all most of my life sort of thing so what do you want to do well be a dentist and be a dentist in the army so you apply for cadetship so for your last two years at dental school you're being paid as a second lieutenant on probation um and, and i got the chance so well you can do an elective you know a study period abroad oh wait okay where can i go well there's two to germany one to hong kong well can i get to hong kong then yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so i went to hong kong for uh, about four weeks yeah, I was a student paid for by the army, stayed at um, HMS Tamar, which is brilliant fun. And then I arrived, um, yeah, we, we do a little, uh, well, it's, it's called the Vickers and Tarts course, but it's, I think it's supposed to be called the Professionally Qualified um, Officers course. The Vickers and Tarts course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go on. And, um, so we have about four weeks at, um, at Sanders at Old College charging around, you know, the, the training area, with, with, <coughs> you know, firing off blanks with st- sticks in your hat and your cam cleaned up your face and I thought well, I'll pay for this this is brilliant fun I mean I do a little marching but that's fine you know someone shouts at you a bit well that's fine and then well that's, all, that's a shame that's all over and then you carry on being a dentist <coughs> but why do you want to be a dentist in the army you want A the money's good I'll be honest compared with TV Street and B you get life beyond dentistry you know um, I could I did so many different things you know one of the first things I did we did an expedition we walked off as dyke you know two weeks doing that um, chance to do all sorts of things like that because I was in older shop we had a unit we entered every sporting competition there weren't many people that wanted to do sports so I was doing everything from biathlons you know, mm. um, cross country I must confess running the southeast district cross country with depot power was, was challenging <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah so you could do all these things uh, and as a dentist professionally it was it was some bits were challenging you had people that weren't interested in looking after their teeth a lot of them um, but you get them sorted out but you know the only limitation on on how good i was um, or who i treated and everything else was my ability as a dentist so what i could do so my duty to make myself as good a dentist as i could and i had a bit more time than some of my colleagues working in civvy street so you know i, I would in my time certainly at older shot i treated from a field marshal um down to a private soldier they all oh, got right. the same just me as my ability as a dentist to get the same treatment mm. Um, and then as you go on, yeah, you start, I mean, you look at the sort of military CV, it goes dental centre so-and-so, dental centre so-and-so, and that becomes a whole list of letters that no one really understands what they mean. It was SO2 brackets 3, PB3, and SO2 bracket 3, AMS, MCM, DIV, and all these, you know, staff job up in Glasgow. And you do follow a more sort of staff-type profile, and then I got picked up, and I did two years. You mean as you got the ranks? You mean? Yeah. How does promote... In fact, why dent? Why why did you want to be a dentist in the first place? Like when you were younger, it was too difficult to get into veterinary school. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of animals, you had to go for humans. Yeah, you people to speak back. It was a disaster. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I so, wanted to do something sort of healthcare, yeah, type thing, practical with your hands, a science sort of background. So. And, and medicine, I was going through one or two issues, and I thought, well, the problem is once you qualify, you've got to carry on qualifying until, you know, it never ends almost. But mm. it's getting that way in dentistry now, which is good because we're all continuing to learn. But it's, uh, and certainly my career has changed a lot, you know, over the last 30-odd years. 
What's changing with dentistry then? Is the is the the, the knowledge of changing science is something? Uh, Technology is coming in. Technology, uh, yeah. So, example, I've got a um, intraoral scanner. So, if you've had a crown made, you know, we'll do um, take molds of the teeth. You know, very unpleasant. A mouthful of gunk <clears throat> um, comes out, and we pour it off to the lab and stuff. Now, I can take a picture. I've got intraoral camera that takes three thousand images per second. I can email that to the lab, and then they can make mill the crown either 3d print it or mill it just send it straight back so 3d printing yeah of the crown and then send that back and what Not, you they'll send you the mold yeah just, no just the crown the crown i don't i don't, I don't have the models anymore oh my god how long, what, how long does that take uh, they can do that if i email it to them on on um, on a monday they can be working on it within seven minutes you can That's get it back crazy you know, isn't it? yeah they did a demonstration in Ghent. They used a drone to fly in the crown. It was made and fitted it that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> does that will that does that bring costs down? Well, you've got to invest in the technology, so it's sort of six or one half a dozen dollars. It does improve patient comfort, improves the outcome because you're getting more and more accurate, and um, improves the you know, turnaround time. So instead of waiting three weeks, you know, within a week you're fitting the crown, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's heading that way. Mm. Technology, as it as it goes into the next generation, becomes cheaper, so costs don't escalate. Explain to me. I'm, I'm thinking my own dentistry experiences now. When uh, with it with the tooth and the gum, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know where we're going here. <laughs> I got questions. My daughter's got to go into uh, she um <laughs> I just remember. I'm gonna ask you, got you, you stuff now. She she she's gonna have a few teeth out. Have some teeth through it and then that. Yeah. And um when digressing it, it's got no point what I was saying. Anyway, she got her teeth out. Let's go back to what I was on about. Your tooth, you got one nerve in the tooth, right? Uh, not quite, no. Okay. Um some teeth have more than one root. So your back, upper back, upper molars, for example. Yeah. Um, they have three, three, um, three different roots, and a sort of range, you know, in, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. in a tripod type thing. So they'll yeah. have different roots going different. So they're they're complicated. Is that three nerves going in there? Yeah, yeah. So when I you have to have a tooth out or some work done, and you have like seven flipping injections in your gum, loads of them, around. Well, you don't need that many, but usually loads. Yeah. When I when I have a uh, <laughs> We are digressing here. When I when I have when I have my teeth, I uh, have the, the numbing injection. Yeah. Every time it goes to wear off, within about half hour, leaving the dentist, I get a, a spot sort of here. Where I'm pointing like halfway down my on my chin on the outside, <laughs> and it is itchy on the skin, and I can't fix the itch. It just oh, oh it starts coming back. The oh tingling. my god! Yeah. All day, it's horrendous. It's got a red raw. It's like an itch you can't fix because it must be itch. It's from the, obviously from the nerve on the inside. Coming back into life. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. It is horrible. It is horrible. But she said, uh, yeah, so she went to have a tooth. She, she, had, to have, she had to have four out. She had to have four out. And she went in to have the first one out as part of the old real life. She's basically got teeth growing, you know, two layers. And yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, she said, oh, they, they, they couldn't, I think they couldn't take it out because it was, it was, ah, it's, it's deep. It's embedded in, the, in like the roof of her mouth. It's quite, the roots are quite deep in. So she said, we'll have to put you under for that one. Excuse, excuse me. But they said, "But if we're going to put you under for that one, then we'll just take the other three out at the same time." So I said, and she's she she she's pretty good with it with the teeth. And I said, uh, "So 
you can have so instead of having one tick uh, instead of having four taken out and the local anesthetic and do four on the general she, yeah that's right result she's like yes result she wasn't wasn't phased with it at all but I had that when, it, when you had the teeth the tooth just doesn't drop out and flipping teeth grow outside it it was, a, it was annoying you get like double Right. multiple layers do you know what I mean I it was my so. canines I had two can- I had two sets of canines and it would not come out for years C- canines are big teeth so <sighs> it was horrible it was stuck in behind I am digressing yeah how do you so with, in the military with the promotion prospects from a dentistry point of view is it part of a general medical channel of promotion or, you know, in terms of appointments? I have to go back. In my time, it was um, on time served, provided you hadn't cocked up anywhere on the line. So if you want you done five years, you got your majority promoted to major. And then 13 years, it used to be that was your promotion to lieutenant colonel because that was the way you got the pay structure and rank structure. How many years, sorry? 13. Yeah. So, but that's changed now because it's obviously a flattening of the ranks um, within the medical services in the military what do you mean as fewer colonels about I mean, we had a um, two-star general <coughs> as head of the dental service when i was there so um now it's a full colonel who's director of the army dental service i believe why is that happened? is it just from Number, numbers numbers <coughs> have gone down quite dramatically so so you want to eat every dentist have a career or something to aspire to so now it's not automatic promotion you've got to do the right courses and everything else and get recommendations oh so it's changed a bit. So I mean, that was great for me because I knew I was promoted to colonel on December the thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. Well, was this a given? Yeah. How would you mess up? Uh, it'd be discipline issues, obviously. Yeah. Or, yeah. but I imagine it, medic- it wouldn't be a medical issue, would it? Not professional, no. Not really. no. It's usually um, drink. Oh, really? Yeah, social misconduct. Ah, uh, social really? misconduct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys don't get away with it like we, we as rankers used to. <laughs> don't you um, believe it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this. There's. I remember a story about um, a CO, and they were, they were, they were in the one of our COs when I was serving, and a bunch of the old company commanders there, and there was a bet. One of the company commanders had a Ford Capri. This isn't long ago, mind. <laughs> <laughs> we recently moved into a new barracks and uh, there was a bet went on the officer's mess about whether the Ford Capri was wider than the, the double doors entrance into the mess. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, well, there's only one way to, to settle that argument. But the problem was on the do- towards the doors of the mess was two, sets, two flights of steps and then... <laughs> <laughs> you got a Ford Capri being driven by this flipping renegade officer up the, up the steps to, into the doorway. There you go, it fits, and there's a photo of one. You wonder how those conversations yeah. start, don't you? Is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, the CO is now uh, a prominent uh, a prominent head of security at a uh, at a bank that won't be mentioned. That everyone <laughs> <laughs> high spirits. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know where, I don't know where the, the, uh, the major is now, though. I got no idea. I got no idea. So where did you finish up with the army? Um, in my last nine years, I only did two years looking at teeth. So that's when I started to do the... Um, I did a staff job for a couple of years. That's the um, AMS MCM Div up in Glasgow, the Army Personnel Centre. Then I went six months in Bosnia. Then it was um, two years at Staff College yeah. doing doing that, which was just yeah tough, but uh, as a dentist, because everyone else had their own you know, expertise to, to fall back on. But when we were doing all these grand plans and campaigns dentistry didn't feature much so um, you know i had to pretend to be other things so it was tough but really enjoyed some great great people on it you know phil joyce um i played my my tight head prop forward oh 
absolute star because we played rugby was brilliant over those two years and we we lost one game i think in about two years just having imagine you a peer group all about the same age same intensity great fun yeah he so did that then i did some teeth um i did a um another posh dental exam and then i was ceo of um 22 foot hospital based in Aldershot. oh so how many people live based on Aldershot these days so that when in fact when did you get out then 2003 that was your last post yeah so the last thing i did i took him out on telly so oh did you yeah so it's got a nice way to finish yeah where, where were you based out of then that was out of older shot and then we went um i was we were based in sort of um where was it it was northern northern kuwait the northern great desert and then we moved forward into iraq but I, by then i was with divisional headquarters i'd been so you were doing a dentist post yeah but you deployed on the invasion yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, wasn't doing dentistry as such as CEO. I wasn't doing any dentistry. No, no, I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. Because I was going to ask you what, what the, sort of your dual, the dual rolling that you you may have had to do. But so what were you doing then, then? When, 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 the, when the Iraq invasion went on? Uh, by then I was with um, uh, headquarters, um, the division headquarters. What, was your, what were you doing with them? I was a, um, the SO1 for the... Jeff uh, Logsey, the Joint Force Logistic Command, the medical component. So we were that link and then looking at casualty flow and all that sort of thing. What does SO1 mean? Staff Officer Grade 1, so Lieutenant Colonel's post. Right, got you. Yeah, because I, I, I remember that in SO1 and SO2. And like you were saying, yeah. you get all those those letters that mean nothing. I, that's all I remember about Brigade Age Quarters when I was in. Lots of people I knew had gone through the ranks, not through the ranks, but were officers. And, and where's he now? He's in Brigade HQ. What's he doing? Oh, he's SO1, blah, 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 blah. I yeah. have a clue what that is. Exactly. <laughs> if there's anything above uh, battalion, uh, com- uh, yeah, battalion, uh, battalion commander, I'm going to blame clue. So, what, so who are you liaison? So you're like a liaison then, yeah? Yeah, so we had then, you then involved with the casualty chain and reporting back, because the, the concern was, the planning concerns was the number of casualties and then using what limited resources we had. And how he'd link in with the other, the other nations that were there to to you know, make sure the casualties were well looked after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they didn't have many casualties in that one, did we? No, Re- so, re- so, relatively speaking. Yeah, relatively so the planning speaking. was was it wasn't the toughest job I've done. Yeah, it was a big build-up. I mean, you know, having my field hospital there initially, because what had happened there was we'd been um, been planning to go over Christmas two thousand and two. Oh, is it today we're going to go? Sort of thing, you know. Then we were stood down, and 101 Log Brigade was put on firefighting duties. Remember, there's a fireman strike at the same time. Oh, yeah, I was on that. Hop, yeah. hop fiasco. <laughs> Flipping heck, yeah. So we were stood down, and then 3-3-Field Hospital was supposed to go, but they got um, they made a lot of protests about it. So they got, there was a uh, march with, with port was blockaded. So the brigade commander rings me up and says, right, Roy, you said, because we said, as soon as you get troops in theatre, you need a hospital a role three um, capability because okay there's no war fighting but they're going to run over someone's foot they're going to be ill they're going to drop something on you know, they're going to get injured some way you know so as soon as you get there you need it host nation or we supply our own and we develop it so you could fit it all in one aircraft in a certain number of iso containers and we did all the planning for it and we trialed it a couple of times and um you know, the brigadier around said right Roy, well, said you could do it just go and fucking do it and that's the sort of chain of command. You know, we learn lots about orders and everything else. That was that was that was the one phone call we had, and that was it. We were off on next week. We were off, so we developed a twenty-five bed hospital that could be set up within twenty-four hours, accepting patients within forty-eight hours um, in northern Kuwait in the desert. There. What's the so? What's the capabilities of a roll three? Roll three is hospital. So we had two operating tables. Yeah. Obviously, anaesthetists. They could do surgery. We had two um, intensive care 
um, beds. We had a 25 bed ward. You had physio, you had um, path lab, and you had a dentist, and you had an A&E component. Path lab? Pathology lab, looking at um, if someone's got bloods and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it, path lab in the desert was a challenge because they were to run certain tests. You've got to keep the temperatures of certain... Um, they did x-ray as well, by the way. Um, keep the temperature down within the, the tent, as it were, because their mm -hmm. stuff goes all temperature dependent. So it was a real challenge. To and keep you said that was the same with the x-rays? Uh, well, yeah, in those days, it was still processing films. So you imagine you have to... Oh, really? And as the chemicals get warm... Of course, it was 2003, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, digital... I presume it's all digital now. So mm -hmm. that make life a bit easier. And then it's easier to sort of get opinions. You can then ping it backwards and forwards and things. Mm -hmm. So do you... So you run in that field hospital? Yeah. How, how do you... How do you... How does it get manned? Do you get any choice in the way... And who, who you have as part of the team? You know, running the different departments and... No. It's just who's available to a certain extent. So we had a blend of, of regulars and um, and TA you know, reservists coming out, and, and they work really well because they yeah they work really well as teams mm -hmm. together. Yeah, they all know their role, and as long as you, you're pulling everything together, it worked really well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What kind of what kind of issues do you have in Kuwait before before the invasion? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Apart from alcohol related, uh, not too bad. In, in it wasn't alcohol there, was it? As no, I recall, no. I don't remember any. Um, Bosnia was a different place, but um, <laughs> was a, was a different thing altogether. It was. I always remember the um, the director, the uh, the medical director, came up to me and said, "Roy, I got a chap in um, in ITU who's a ninety percent match for bionic plague." And you think, because remember all the, there was all this stuff about um, yeah, biological warfare, you know, dropping in small box type things or anything, you know, on rags left around in local support yeah. and that sort of thing. And I said, okay, we're not going to report it yet until um, it's 100%. And as it was, he had a type of malaria, oh. um, which is, can mimic. Malaria is a great mimic of all sorts of diseases. So he was, he was very seriously ill. And then um, so we, we got him stabilised and got him out of theatre. But we had to, yeah, the Padre turned up. And he said, sir, do you mind if the Padre shares your tent? Well, not at all. So he turns up and he's got one of these CPAP machines for sleep apnea, the snoring type yeah. thing. He said, excuse me, sir, where do I plug this in? I said, Padre, I'm in a tent in the middle of the desert. There aren't any plugs. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so the one place I did have a plug was by intensive care, one of my two intensive care beds. Right, you can stay there and then you can leave. There's no point being in theatre. You, know, you, yeah. you can't get a wall with a seat back machine. You've got to plug <laughs> in at night. <laughs> so you, you had sort of odd things like that. We had... Um, well, the, the dude with malaria must have got that from somewhere else. Yeah, you turn, you, no, he turned up with it. So oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, a great yeah. thing to get people out. We had people turning up in plaster casts, you know. We had one, <laughs> chap, yeah, we had one chap who was there. He'd had, um, he still had stitches in. He had some kind of ear injury and lost, and he had it pulled off, but all stitched back on. And um, we were there, and if you, at the time, there was lots of alarms going off, so you're putting it on your respirator all the time. <coughs> what if you had your ear stitched off, you're putting on a normal respirator? It does some damage each time you take it on and off, you know. So, yeah, yeah. getting things set up. So we said, well, we need the cows back so we can practice with them. We take Ring Back London, and one particular colonel, again, I shan't name, he was saying, um, well, they're war stock, you can't have them. He said, well, it might be war tomorrow. You can have them tomorrow then. <laughs> so um you had a lot of that and you had people people a lot of people came out ill because there's such a push to get numbers there so heat was a bit of an issue you know training um so by the time yeah the war fighting started i was actually in in division headquarters so i didn't see many of the casualties coming in at that stage but we had some quite serious head and neck ones as well going through mm. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the heat was the big one. We when we said we, we mentioned there about the firefighting. We I think we went on to up up fresco up fiasco. Uh, <laughs> it just lined up, wasn't it? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It was November or December. I was just a Tom at the time. And then we deployed to Iraq. So that was a few months, a couple of months doing that, I think it was. And then we deployed to Iraq February or March yeah, we went. next year. And, uh, yeah, that was frustrating. Oh, my God. Because we knew we were going. We just didn't know when. Just didn't know when. And uh, to not be able to train. I mean, for me, the Tom, it wasn't, wasn't my concern, <clears throat> you know, really. But I remember the commanders being Tenerero, and now myself looking back as having become a commander after, I think, oh my god, it must have been so frustrating, you know. Well, we had the same scenario, you know. Each week, each day, we had a Christmas day, we had a meeting over the Christmas stand down, thinking, oh, are we going to go in? Oh, you know, we're we going to call everyone back off leave. Is this today the day, sort of thing? And it was just this sort of never, you know, hurry up and wait, which classic army training, I suppose. Mm. Mm. What was different about Bosnia then? Bosnia has a lot more drink related problems. Yeah. <laughs> What's so, that? Was there a lot more? Was there more downtime for the troops? Um, I, I think the issue. What I mean, I was in split for the first part of my tour there, and um, that was a staging post for people coming in out there. So the up country, <clears throat> yeah, they were quite stricter on what you would drink in split. There seemed to be there were fifty four various bars in camp at various points. So in camp, yeah. Jesus. So um, people let their hair down, so to speak. So was it a multinational camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who, who was in there? Obviously, they, they was in there, yeah, nation, um, nations-wise. Nationwide, Dutch were in there. They were a big element. Um, we had some Turks in there as well. Mm. Um, so I think it was a small American bit down in down in Split, but not much. Mm. Mm. I had um, a, a guest on who is Serbian. Oh right, yeah. Um, she's married to a ex-military, ex-British Army guy now, <coughs> mate of mine. Um, but she came on. She was, she came on to talk. She got blown up in Afghan when she 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 went out there as a you know as a um, uh, what do you call it? Not project manager. God, I can't remember. It. Sort of a PRT kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And she had uh, some private security looking after her, and they got they got uh, suicide attack. Suicide bombers attacked them. Um, but she was talking about growing up in Serbia and all that was going on, and it was an interesting perspective to you to to hear from the way she described yeah her perspective on that so because the serbians were sort of uh they were the enemy weren't they if you think back they were the they were the they were the bad guys and you do you from her perspective as a civvy oh, and yeah, she's well, quite impartial you know um i think the problem was it, it was a certain animaticism some of the bosnian serbs were perhaps you know, mm. slightly worse yeah there's you know mladic and that lot and it i think is um the whole of that is such a complex issue that goes back for so long. It is as both sides had their elements, but um, Shabanitsa and things like that are just incredible. It's happened in our lifetimes. <coughs> mm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it was hard to work out that one. Everyone was bad and everyone was good. Everyone was assholes. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, I, I think the bit that really <laughs> staggered me when I, when, I, when I was there was, um, yeah, I was there about 97, so it was quite late on. It was the sort of ethnic, the selective ethnic cleansing that went on. He went around some of the villages and things. I mean, that house would be burnt down. That one over there would be burnt down. Yeah, it was just almost random. And if just neighbours just picking on that one family, even though they'd lived together for years, suddenly all this hatred just boiled over and it just became uh, horrible, really. You know, Victimisation and, and um, ethnic cleansing. Mm. 
we were, we were when I was talking to her, and I when, when we were talking off air, when I was reading between lines of what she was saying, and she guarded she guards her words for a very intelligent woman. She she expressed herself very well. And she also also guards what she says very well. Um, and one of the one of the catalysts for what sent the country down the pan um, was um, an independence referendum. <laughs> <laughs> no, I <laughs> deadly serious, and um, and that's uh, that's how that's when you speak to them uh, about the people who are sort of politically aware at the time and sort of educated in that background. That's how they. That's one of the catalysts, not the cause, but one of the one of the factors that ended up driving people apart. Um, no, I, obviously, flipping resonates what's going on at the minute. I, I, I don't know if I'd be a Brexiteer or a Remainer, but I know it's annoying me at the minute with everything that's going on. Um, I think um, what's sad about what's going on now is people are now our political class are focusing on themselves and looking after themselves, not looking about what's best for the country instead of all getting together and saying, you know, everyone's trying to score points and saying this is rubbish. Yeah. But actually, they should say, well, this is what, nothing was offering anything constructive anymore. It's just, this is rubbish. Yeah, you know, no, yeah. I, 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 I 100% agree, 100% agree. I, I don't have much faith in, in politics um, anyway. I, I think it's just, a, it's just a, it's something that's just doomed to failure because of the way it is. But, but as you say there, there's some, as soon as, a, as soon as, uh, the the opposition, whether that's Labour or Conservative, whoever it is at the time, as soon as the opposition sniff that there is a bit of controversy or a chance to sway public opinion in their favour, because that could then flip public opinion on whoever's in charge, or the you know be that the, the individual, the PM, mm. or be that the party in charge, and so they can get power, then they just 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 gets pounced on pounced on over dramatize everything which is what's happening now which is fine as you're saying if it's for the the good of the country but when you get a when you get a politician and i can't remember it was a lady i can't remember a bloody name and she said it was it was a day before i think Theresa may was re- releasing a draft brexit deal right, yeah. and this politician said um well i haven't seen it yet but i can't imagine it's the kind of thing i would be willing to uh agree with and that one sentence, I thought, that, me, 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 me. what, just, what is that attitude? You haven't seen it, yet you're already committing yourself and not agreeing with it. What kind of, where is your public interest? You know, and, and unfortunately, and this paints me as like a, uh, a Brexiteer, I'm neither here nor there. I didn't vote either. I didn't vote. And it's, I, I, I didn't vote because, um, I fucking have a throw in my face a lot. I didn't vote because, uh, I don't know what information to trust. Everything is everything is twisted. So I don't... I think that campaign in particular was really awful, the way it was portrayed, the way it was done. You know, it's a simple yes, no, but actually that some of the information that was portrayed, you know, there's, there's still legal cases <coughs> going on, isn't it, saying, you know, that money was spent and all that sort of thing was all wrong. I thought that campaign, you know, and then the, you know, we had this massive sort of era where things changed, then you had Trump being elected not long afterwards, you know, the world's gone mad sort of thing. But I think that referendum and they say oh let's have another one but what will that prove the vote's been had so the idea that right that's the vote is it's leave europe so sorted out sort of thing since so i mean what i would have thought would have been sense was right let's get so many people from different parties 
let's work out the best way to leave Europe. And now it's become a political issue. It's never going to happen in an orderly fashion. It's now got stalemate and they'll have another vote. And if they say, oh, what are we going to vote for? Stay in, stay out, this deal? We do. I, I, I can't see... Look, <clears throat> look if they say... Um, somehow, I, I, I can't see how it happened. But let's say um, there was another referendum held and they say, well, look, we'll have another referendum because uh, we didn't know all the information we know now. And the, 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 we didn't know the information then that we know now kind of thing. Um, well, that's, that's you know, you we know no more accurate information than we did then. It's still yeah. uncertainty. And if you if you hold another referendum, what makes that referendum more, more valid than the previous exactly. one? Exactly, exactly. It just it, it would it 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 would put it would make a mockery of every single vote or anything that goes down the line because because it invalidates everything. Mm. It just it's like saying. Um, you know, a year after the Conservatives get in, or Labour get in, or Theresa May or John Major or flipping whoever get in, a year later we go, whoa, 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 we should have another, we should have another um, general election because we didn't know he was going to be a fucking nutter six months ago. We didn't know that he was going to completely reverse on his policies and this that and the other. It's the same thing. You can't do it again. You can't do it again. Yes, I think you can. Uh, you can argue, um, you know, if the deal that she's striking is a good one or not. If you do it objectively, and not as we said for your own political gain, and just say no, 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 we don't agree with it because if we don't agree with it enough, then that's going to um, unseat her, and then we can get one of our own people in power, and then we're in charge of all the money and all the power. And that's what it's about. Pisses, exactly. pisses exactly. me off. I think we should just go because because of the uncertainty, and because no one, no one knows, no one knows it's going to happen. I don't think they don't know. They don't know, and I also think that it's going to be that slight an impact, positive or negative. It won't even fucking matter. I don't think. It won't even. It won't even impact us that greatly. So I think. I think that look, let's just sign it off. Let's get. Let's get through the door because that will. The best thing for us is to appear and act as a stable country politically, economically. With all this crap's going on, it just makes it. It just makes us vulnerable because it's not just the infighting going on. Other countries are looking to seize on this and pounce on this and take and and take away the um, financial you know, commercial strength yeah, and economic strength. Yeah. You have in certain industries; they'll be fucking loving it. Which is why uh, it's it's all just a, it's all a power thing in a different way. I mean, the prime minister of Norway came out today and said, "What did he say?" I think he said um, that he would support. It's, it's to do with supporting a different type of deal to what. Theresa May's negotiating all this. Right, it annoys me. It annoys me. I, I wish that. Uh, I wish that um, everyone could see how much spin there is on things, and that, and and the real, the real motivations behind why people are doing things. And this isn't conspiracy theory. It's no, not. Yeah, you know, it's no. not. You know, Jeremy Corbyn isn't piping up and saying what he says because he wants the best of the country. He's piping up right now and saying what he's saying because he wants to be the fucking Prime Minister. He doesn't care who he gets there. He doesn't he, care. He had no views on, on, on no. the referendum. He hardly spoke, did he, the whole time? And, and it's not and I'm just near and near. It's the same for any of the politicians. Yeah. It's the same for any of them, you know. But that's the game. That's the game. Um, yeah, and it sells papers. And it sells TV. And uh, I had a right rant there. I had a right rant. I don't know. I don't know, but I mean, people weren't happy with uh, with being in the EU. Changes as good as the rest, so I don't know. Maybe it's for the better.
or something had to happen you know, I think one way or the other because it was always us against Europe wasn't it that's how it's always been portrayed so um, yeah, let's see how we get on our own mm. yeah I think we should be alright I think we should be alright but again we'll never know either way so whatever just do it it's done let's do it the people have spoken <laughs> <laughs> well they have and that is the one good thing I mean what was the result was a you know, surprise it's actually one of the first times where a, a plebiscite has actually got a result that's going to change the power, you know, the course of the nation so I think that's quite a powerful thing to have when you look back on that so even though the referendum just said yes or no and just went, oh we didn't vote for that well you don't know what you voted it was yes or no is what you voted for in or out you know you wouldn't vote for hard Brexit soft, whatever you voted in or out so um and that's what the vote was and for the, you know and it was a surprising result I think most people didn't expect it to go that way but yeah, the people have spoken, so I think it's up to the people to listen and do what we can to get it right. Yeah, well, I, I expected it to go that way, I, yeah. and I think it was—I think it was um, your opinion of where what, where it was going to go it was down to where you, sort of where you live and who your circle of friends were. I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, predominantly the—I mean, look, the, predominantly the, like the Brexiters uh, are painted with that sort of right wing. Uh, you know, right leaning, um, uh, keep Britain British. You know, Tommy Robinson kind of kind yeah, of attitude. Yeah, you know, and unfortunately, um, unfortunately, that's the case. And 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 so, and, and uh, with myself, a lot of ex-military friends is not to say that we're all flipping right leaning. You know, Tommy Robinson supporters. You know, but but. We're sort of more right than left, I'd say. In general, I'm neither. I'm probably more left, to be honest. Uh, but I, so I, I thought, well, yeah, this is going to be a we're going to vote for Brexit. And then when it happened, I spoke to a friend, really good friend down in London, whose family is sort of upper middle, middle class. Um, she grew up in a very nice part, Surrey, you know, <laughs> um, and she could not believe it she could not believe that one it was that close and two it went the way of the yeah, Brexit she couldn't believe she couldn't believe it no everyone 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 to stay <laughs> it's not the case <laughs> you know it's not the case look how many immigrants he got down in uh, uh, you know, I won't say where she lives cause, you know down in the, down in that part. So are you from? You know, it's, it's that. It doesn't affect you. So it doesn't affect your circle of friends. So you don't, if people are influenced in that way and they bought into that, because the immigration argument was a massive argument for the mm. Brexit campaign. It was huge because they were appealing to those masses who who sort of uh, were who weren't happy or aren't happy with the UK and the way things are and and and, and that they don't you know they're not living the lives they want to live. And at the time, that was all chucked on immigration oh it was the major thing if I remember immigration was the major problem mm. and they've taken the jobs it's the money and the EU are doing all this so we can you know so uh, yeah it is from where you, it's, it's, your circle it's how it's portrayed wasn't it and, yeah. Um, yeah there's so many other things it's such a comp- clearly complex issue that um, that no one knows no what's going to happen we'll <laughs> see in March next year <laughs> I know yeah if we get there well aren't they isn't the Supreme Court looking at uh, extending Article 50 yeah, they hadn't followed it. Yeah, so because it's Article Fifty has brought us to March twenty nineteen, yeah, right? Yeah. Is a Supreme Court decision? Are they re- they rev- they've been reviewing whether it would be if if the if uh, the UK, if the UK Parliament uh, government voted to extend 
uh, Article 50 period, would it be allowed? And they're, they're debating, they've had the hearing, they're right. coming to a decision. Yeah. I don't think they'll extend it. Oh, but having said that, it might do, you know, because then the chaos would in, the chaos would continue in the UK for longer, which would weaken us further in terms of our ability to deal with uh, the external entities. I don't know. Oh my god! How long have we so you're back on the conspiracy again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't trust any of it. I don't trust any of it. I was looking at the BBC today, and and see. I can't stand any of the papers, but I, I now what I do is I flip between the BBC and Sky, and I just don't have a look at the news. To see, I look at the news to see if any flipping catastrophes have happened. And the BBC said, uh, what was the headline? Um, uh, Theresa May, oh God, what did it say? Hadn't given up or something, was it? No, no, uh, no it says the, tre- uh, the Treasury, um, Treasury says that there'll be minimal, uh, very little economic cost for uh, Brexit. And then I flipped to Sky, and it said that um, uh, growth, uh, growth will be uh, economic growth will be, will be impacted by something nine percent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, they were talking about the same the same sources and just two two different one saying you just they just play each other or just play each other just playing into different two different parts of the country. You know, yeah, it's like that mirrors. Keep, that keeps them going, though, isn't it? So, uh. It's like CNN and Fox News, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fake news. Yeah, where, where were we before Brexit? <laughs> Bosnia. Oh, Bosnia. <laughs> <laughs> How did Bosnia work out? <laughs> I managed to play some rugby in Bosnia, actually. <laughs> did you? Yeah, I used to go. I used to go down train at um, at Split uh, with the with the um, team down there. It's a Croatian team down there. So. Uh, oh, that's like Croatian Croatian rugby team. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they were good fun uh, going down there. But on Thursday night, I think we go down and play a lot of touch rugby, a lot of running about. So. Uh, they, were they uh, quite a physical side? Well, it was touch rugby, but yeah, it was pretty physical. Yeah. <laughs> the number of arguments you got in a game like that. And it was just, but for me, it was brilliant. I mean, I didn't understand a word. You just ran around and shouted and <laughs> pointed. <laughs> it was great fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't know how I, got, I even got there. but um, Where, to the to split? To the, to the ground, you mean? Uh, no, how, how on earth? I got myself invited to go along training with them every week. You know, I, can't, I can't remember what the route was. but um, One of those dodgy bars. Uh, probably. <laughs> 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 but I thought it was fantastic, you know, to go yeah. along and, uh, you yeah, know, operational tour, and there I was playing rugby. So, was, so when you were in, then, was, was majority your fitness, your upkeeping your fitness is that through rugby or did, what did you, what, what was your reason I, 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 uh, I always had the view that you know I had to be fit to play rugby I didn't play rugby to get fit <laughs> um, so I, I used to go out an awful lot a lot of running um, yeah I did a lot of rugby training I tried to avoid doing all the stuff doing like weights and stuff I, I never liked any of that those free weights or multi-gyms never liked that mm. at all but um, yeah so I mainly um, just, just aerobic fitness all the time doing various things what about so you said like natural strength for, for the hooker? Oh, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> degree of stupidity. I was how that helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I certainly I was I was I much fairly quick as a hooker as well. So you almost play as an extra back row getting around the park. Yeah. So uh, you don't get a lot of quick hookers. I remember. Uh, remember Keith Wood. Mm. He's a prop, wasn't he? Hooker. Wait, was he hooker? Yeah, hooker. I always remember the moment. I say I always remember the moment. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember the details now. I think they were. I think Ireland were playing England, and um, and he with the winger English winger got the ball. No, 
Keith Wood intercepted the ball and he as a hooker and he because he was quick as well, wasn't he? and he and he's on the touchline and he turns on his heels. And he out accelerated the English. Yeah. He did the wing on the outside half. He goes end up scoring a try. I always remember Keith Wood doing that. Yeah, he was a rapid hooker. He wasn't. He wasn't huge either, was he? Oh no, it wasn't for it wasn't for Ireland. It was for the British Lions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for the British Lions. Yeah. Did you ever have you ever any ever played any not testimonials? What would you call them? With, with the military, with the army teams um, against sort of international sides or Premiership sides. The closest we got was we went to Bermuda and played in the the Classics tournament, which is a sort of um, over 35s tournament. So there you have over 35 international players playing. Um, we didn't weren't allowed to play <laughs> against them, but they had South African there, George Grants and all that. They had the old Greys, they called them the old um, former All Blacks playing. They had uh, Mike Teague, Winterbottom, all these sort of. And because you're a player in this tournament, you're allowed in the players' bar with them. That was fantastic oh. fun. But we played. Um, we played New Orleans, which was um, great fun, and um, and we played Bermuda. Played one of the Bermuda sides as well. Um, we beat HMS Cardiff were there as well. So there's lots of rivalry going on. So that was probably the closest we've been part of that tournament um, mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But that's well worth going to. You ever been involved in coaching or anything? I did a little bit um, because I was um, my role at OLs or Lamingtonians. I got involved with coaching South Warwickshire district under 17s and that's a feed of them for Warwickshire under 18s and you know all of a sudden I'm helping out uh, with Warwickshire 18s as well sort of thing so got involved with that and obviously when your son goes up you know you get involved take him along but he went off um, actually got um, a choral scholarship to Warwick so he's at um, he went off to sing in the choir on a Sunday so I then took my daughter she played tag rugby a lot so went along with her but I was told not to shout too much at the <laughs> oh, yeah. They hate it, don't they? They're only children. You just <laughs> yeah. calm down. Well, you've got to be careful these days yeah. as well. With the, the, you, you, you do. As in, uh, so many bloody rules. I don't Because my, my uh, last few years, my experience of sort of youth sport has been through football. My daughters, uh, they were they they were footballers. They were both footballers at one, one point in time. One, one's, uh, I mean, only 10, the other one's 13. The other one's still playing football now. I ended up as a welfare officer for the first club they played for, uh, you know, the child welfare officer, and then I ended up coaching. Never bloody clue, never clue. I don't know football. Mm. Um, running a line sometimes. I remember the first time I ran the line was the first year my eldest was in was at, a, at an age where they the offside rule was. I did not have a. <laughs> she, she even to this day she dreads it <laughs> when they say <laughs> when the coach says he might run the line for us and I'll go yeah you know and, my, and Ellie may well be oh my god no daddy no because uh, the like, first couple of matches I put the flag up thinking it was offside and the ref the blowers the ref would go he go what was that for mate I say offside and he said, you can't have offside if I throw in. Oh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that, so everyone was looking at me going, who is this space cadet? Yeah, who, who, who was also coaching. <laughs> yeah, but um, the rules with uh, youth football and parenting, they're trying to, obviously you've got the issues with football with um, hooliganism, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that, or the main way that they're trying to stamp that out, that bad stigma attached to football fans is a grassroots level, um, so it's it's crazy. It's crazy. It seems backwards to me when they're trying to do it. So when you go to a football match, you, there's a it's called a respect line. I don't know if you wear this, 
and you, it's a I've, lane. I've never been to a football match, so. It's a lane, and it's, this is at any level, it's a lane, and it's two metres back from the touchline. You're not allowed to encroach that line. And the spectators can only stand on one side of the pitch. You can't go all around the pitch. You've got to stay two metres back. Um, uh, yeah. It makes sense. I can see well, that. It, well, yeah, but it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't, 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 doesn't fix the issue. Because if they're trying to... Look, if you're trying to fix the problem that um, you get hooligans at the, at the top level of football, you know, hooligan fans... Uh, and the top levels where it matters because that's what everyone Surely sees. Surely for those, that's just a lifestyle. And, you know, football's just a conduit for it, isn't it? I mean, do you think the football's that relevant? Why is it not the same in rugby? In rugby, most people that go along and watch rugby have played rugby. It's only internationals. Well, it's got to be the case for football, surely. It's more playable. <laughs> yeah, no, it has to be. Okay, I, yeah, but, yeah. but the, like, so for me, the main issue is with the football is that... Um, is that the the role models that these people are looking at are people yeah. on the pitch? Look at the way these people on the pitch treat the authority figures, like the ref and the. Oh, the, it's, it's yeah. disgusting. Mm. It is, it's disgusting. I, oh, it breaks me. So where they should be trying to fix it is the players. It's like in rugby, you gob off a, a referee on the rugby pitch, well you're going back ten meters. You've just lost ten meters of ground. You know? yeah, there's yeah, a penalty yeah, against yeah. you for just just for questioning the referee. Just for, so it doesn't, you know, it rarely happens. You know, oh, we're getting away with a bit of scrapping. <laughs> But yeah, you, know, you can't. That's interpretation. But you can't question your authority. No. It should be the same in football. They're getting that way. They're getting that way. You know. But I mean, putting you know having the two meters line back from the, on the respect line side of the pitch. Ah, that's the other one. Um, it's not a football until you get a certain age. I think it's no. It's all grassroots. Eight so eighteen and eighteen and below. It's not allowed to be competitive. So it's so football is not competitive, even though there's leagues and even though the object of the game is to score, score more goals than the opponent, it's not competitive. So the aim is not to win the game; the aim is to take part. It's not competition, right. not allowed. So where you got it? Let's say another example of that is where you got a team, uh, an age group of under thirteens, and you got enough to make two sides, an A and a B team, for example. Well, you can't. Well, one, you can't call them A and B team. It's got to be yellow team and green team, for example. It's got to be, and and they're not allowed to have a the good side and the not so good uh, side. When I was coaching the under nines, it was the same then because what he didn't want to do because certainly in rugby people are going to grow up at different rates and whilst they might be A and B now in a, you know three years time they could well be reversed. So you want to be mm. as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to what you're saying about the mixed ability, you know, side that played at the patrons' lunch you went to. It's encouraging people, as many people as possible, to get out. And I think that's where, you know, what we try to do is just keep the family, if you like, as big as possible. So that when they, cause you're going to lose people as you go up through the years, just keep it as big as possible, include everyone. There's always space for someone in every team. So I think that's what, you, you know, that side <coughs> of it, I think, is what you're trying to get at, isn't it? Just get everyone playing and not sort of, Already, you know, at, at 10, you're in the C team and that's it. You know, your career's over. Yeah, well, yeah, I see what you say. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I, I agree with the inclusion, mm. but I also think that you should have the, the A and the B and the C, whereas the A is the, the better ability. That, that doesn't mean that you're always A's. If your ability goes down between one season and the next, or, or get the game, then you're going to the B and you're going to the C. Because you have to drive competition. You've got to drive the, the, aspire, the, the aspiration to want to... Be better, and if if everyone's getting the same bite of the apple, 
regardless of their ability or regardless of the effort they put in ah well yeah that's a different you know answer, then yeah, yeah, yeah. then we get nowhere yeah well you, you've got to have but you've got to have your, your the level you want everyone to get so you may be spending more time on other players getting them up to that level but you've got to keep the ones that are good already active as well so it's rotating around you're just mm-hmm. keeping everyone going i think yeah. that's the key yeah if it's managed well it's fine yeah yeah definitely um so who um are the other who, who on you who are the other guys in, on the on the Atlantic Mavericks team? There's four of us. There's the three of them ex military, are they? We're all ex military. Uh, oh, sorry. I, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. So four of us all ex military. Um, three of us know each other thirty years. So we were playing rugby, in, that, yeah, yeah in, in Berlin and places in you know in the nineteen eighties and things, late nineties. And then um, Ian, poor chap, he turned up to see me at my practice and got chatting. What are you doing now? Then so I got him <laughs> playing playing rugby for the Mavericks as we carried on our fixtures. And, <laughs> You know, his partner, he went, don't get to see Roy again, he get roped into something else. And we were, and then the, the, the rowing thing started. So, and I had a brief chat, oh, this is our latest project. Oh, I'd I, I done some of these in joint, really? So I got a little video, played him that, and then, right, he was hooked. And then, so he became a reserve. And then, so one of our other chums, he dropped out because his body said, I can't do this, you know, second operation on his knee within 12 months. And so um, Ian Donnelly got in, he's, um, yeah, so he's quite local in Ironbridge. And to a Stanley Shrewsbury, so four ex uh, military. Um, what units? Two reams, one dentist, one gunner. Oh, okay, all officers. No, no. Uh, Ian retired after. He, he, he somehow kept extending his career. Ian Davis, um, ASM in the Remy, Tiny was. Um, I think um, he was at BM with the um, with the Remy as well. Tiny's called Tiny. He's about six foot six and twenty stone. <laughs> <laughs> And then Ian was, was with uh, Gunners, so I made with Gunners. So. Do you not want to light people on the boat? Or is it, is it common? Tiny is our top rower. So he, he, he was the only one that rowed before we started. <laughs> uh, any uh, any decent level? He rowed for the army and things. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, awesome. Although yeah. when we went, we had a, we did some training, uh, offshore rowing um, last month. He was the only one to capsize. So. Okay. <laughs> Look, they is it? I think it's it's rowing and swimming are the only two sports where it exercises every single, yeah. nearly every single muscle in the body. Rowing rowing's been phenomenal. I mean, I'd come to it late, but um, you know, yeah, it, it's it's tough, but it's really good, and you really benefit from it. Yeah, I enjoy the concept rower. I've not done it properly. My dad used my dad used to row for England when he was um, in college. And, uh, what are you doing next year then we might need a reserve <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, my cousin did it for Great Britain but she was uh, god you think of rowers as like you're saying they're 6 foot 6 bit like brick shit houses pardon the expression I mean my dad's 6 3 <clears throat> and he's not a slight man it's all levers you're saying for them <laughs> yeah yeah and my cousin she is she's tall she's about my height but there is not an ounce of muscle on her and I mean you know she's she's slim 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 not an ounce of muscle on it you look and you think flipping heck you're uh mm. you're like a yoga t- well she's a yoga teacher now but uh, you're not a rower and yeah. she compete with gb i never used to work it out she oh she would compete like that and she was superb at it superb at it but then it's but the, the body generates level, power in the, peculiar yeah, ways isn't it they, they, but they they train they train really and the level they're at is just phenomenal i look at the time mm. some of those do mm. um awesome yeah all forearms and w- muscles in weird places. 
Like, your shins, the front of your shins, mm. and the side where you're curling your toes up against the bar. <laughs> 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 and twisting the, yeah. But the, uh, uh, do you have to, you know when you're rowing all that way, when, do you have to twist the oars on that? Feathering. You, um, do you have to feather the oars or not? It depends on the wind to a certain extent. It's okay. not as crucial because, you know, you're not on a flat calm rowing as you would be, you know. So the oars are kind of higher then, right? Than well, the boat's going to be all over the shop. So, you know, that oar might be in at that height. That oar might be down at that oh, height. Oh, really? So it, it, you almost develop this sort of running man ah. type um, style because, you know, they, at some point there can be some pretty big waves about. So it's going to be difficult to, to row. But what we're trying to do is l- learn in an ideal way so that you know when the blade's engaging the water, you're getting the maximum out of each oar stroke, you know, all the time. So you're not doing air shots or anything like that. So you've got to be, almost have a light touch when you're manoeuvring the blade, you know, you're doing the recovery. And then when you're doing the catch, you've got to make sure you're in the water. So it's it's learning like that. So whilst we're learning to row now, it's when we get the boat and start practicing on the sea. That's going to be another step up. What about, I was just thinking there, my health and safety head on. If you were every stroke... Now, for me to be able to do that, I th- I'm thinking I'd have to look at, I'd have to glance at each oar to see where the water level is and get them in and catch you the just, water. You just float, you have your, your light hands. So you literally don't have it gripped that tightly. You almost have it just you know, slack in your hands. So you have a loose yeah. grip so that, you know, you just. Uh, I joined the Shropshire Adventure Rowing Club when we row up and down the Severn you know, at night, you know, in the nights, pitch black and everything else. And the only training instructions I was giving them was oh, just float your oar. What does that mean? You know, and it, what it means is you just literally just put the oar in, in, in the water and it finds the right level. So what you do is just relax your hands. So it's soft hands almost whilst you're doing the recovery to find the water and then you dry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sounds simple, doesn't it? I'm sure. It, I, I can't imagine it being simple. I'm thinking <laughs> of the, you know, I was thinking, I think I think you have to glance through the waves are. And with the, I think well, if you put a couple of wing mirrors on either side of the boat, you can look at the mirrors and see where the oars are dropping in. See, there you go. Think about that one. Don't laugh. Think about no, that no, one. No, no, no. You can get these little <laughs> little hats with mirrors on, can't okay. you? Sculling cap. You can see, so you can see can, where you're going. You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you're rowing backwards, basically. You can't see yeah. where you're going. The skull's a bluff job, isn't it? Is it the skull that you call a skull at the head of the boat when... Uh, Scully, yeah. those little ones we yeah there's no like, what what do you call the the guy who sits in the front of the cocks. boat? The cock skull. Sorry, the cocks. Yeah, that's a bluff job. How much skill is involved in the cocks? Surely it can't be a lot. Oh, I think there is. Yeah, keeping the rhythm of the boat going and no. steering, <laughs> finding the right course. Oh, dear <laughs> chap! We're not taking one the across the Atlantic. The <laughs> 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 I know, you never know. I might have an, might, oh, no, I was going to say might have an injury. Touchwood, and they could be able to uh, cock like we don't. Um, are Akuma sponsor? I just seen the jacket. Are Akuma sponsoring the, the clothing? We're hoping so. We, we, this was. We are now. <laughs> <laughs> this was our initial sort of negotiations, getting yeah. some some team gear. When for when we went out last year to to see the start of last year's race. Yeah. Because you go along. I mean, I think this year they're, they're going about two weeks time. I think you know, the guests have set, and they've got twenty eight boats, eighty eight rowers from fourteen nations. So and they all start at the same point. Yeah. Which is just brilliant. So you, you get go set off at different times. You just go off, you have your start time, so they send them all off at various points. But it's, um, everyone's there together. So for us, you know, information is pay. You want to chat to people, find out, you know, how did you raise the finance? How would you do this? What training? Anything else? So you just chat to people. And we wanted to go along as a team. So we got on Mavericks. On the last one? Or are you going this one? Uh, we went out last December oh, yeah, yeah. To, just to chat to people, a few days there. Yeah. I mean, as it was start of the race was actually delayed because of the wind so we didn't actually see, physically see the start but we were there we could bump into crews you saw them getting the final preparation so you went around and, ch- and saw the different style of boats as well because there's 
you know, all different t- uh, pure boats, concept boats, and all that sort of thing. Mm. So it's just gathering, you know, just like sponge, just gathering much information for us as well. It was a good chance to sit down over a few beers and say, right, what is it we want to do? You know, we said we're going to row the Atlantic. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Sort of thing, you know. And uh, are we going to go for a world record? Well, probably not. We're all in our late fifties. Yeah, what's our aim? Our aim is to go from Lagomero to Antigua. Yeah, I want to do it in less than 45 days, but 45 days is our, our target. Have you thought about getting there for the end of the race? As oh, in, to, to go to Antigua? Yeah. Um, would do, but it's... Could um, be as important as seen the start. Well, maybe. a bit slightly more unpredictable, the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm busy training to go next year as well. Yeah, fair point. I like the idea of going to Antigua. For <laughs> you ought to come and see us when we <laughs> arrive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can do a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, no, but yeah, Kuma kit's good. Oh, they did these these jerseys. I, I look forward to receiving mine. Oh, you get it, yeah, I get it Friday. Um, uh, what else? Do you, so, what, have you secured any other sponsors yet? Um, not. There's lots. You of just started, haven't you? You just started. Well, no, we've had it for about a year, but oh. it, but it is difficult to get there. So we've been doing. We've we've organised a um, a great duck race. You know, raising a bit of money, but a lot of fun. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ian said, you know, he has this orderly start where he puts um, 800 ducks into the, plastic ducks into the river. <laughs> he said, and I said, well, I look really good when you do that. Yeah. He said, from that moment on, it became absolute chaos. It was like Lauren Hardy. They <laughs> 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 you know, fell in, both of them fell in, you know, <laughs> ducks all down the river. <laughs> so that was brilliant fun. We, we got having various events. We're doing a dinner night at the Warwickshire um, in January. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, to come along. Um, again, we're going to get a guest speaker, but um, hopefully we've got one chap who has a blind vet who's rowed, just finished rowing the Pacific in January, in June this year. So Amazing. Who's that? Um, Sparky. Bill Sparky, I think his name is. So um, he's going to come along. In March, we're hoping to do a 24-hour sort of um, continuous row at the Warwickshire, you know, just... We might do it outside. The, and the Warwickshire... Golf and Country Club. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, you might do it outside, so for you know, for an extra fee, you can come and chuck a bucket of water over us to make it realistic. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're always trying to do events like that. You know, we 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 had the um, we took a rowing machine and a, a, a rowing boat to ocean rowing boat to the last rope for heroes, you know, on display. And when we get our boat, we're going to tap that round as well. So you're always doing things like that, but it's negotiating with some of the corporates is is the big thing to, to generate that sort of income. You've got to raise best buy of 100k to get to the start line. <sighs> Uh, but that, what does that include purchasing the boat that's the boat yeah. that's the training um, you've got to get the boat to Lagomere <laughs> you've got to get it back from Antigua all things like that there's some safety courses and and food you know food you've got to eat 6,000 calories just about each day so a tiny bit, a bit more so he's having a trailer at the back to get his food <laughs> 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 so you've got to pay for your food I mean by doing it as part of the the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge you've got to have an awful lot of safety gear as well and that's um, compulsory you know the life raft and they do they come along they inspect it and all that sort of thing so you, yep. yeah so our view is always if it's safety that's maximum you know maximum spend on that and anything else we can cut, perhaps cut back on where we can so we're looking at securing some you know some rations some wet rations and that sort of thing which we can take with us you mm-hmm. know through um through various friends and sources i'm sure you remember those days i know i know a few people <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, we have to start wrapping this up. Um, uh, so, where can people 
find you, follow you, Atlantic Mavericks. AtlanticMavericks.co.uk, yeah. uh, website, we're on Facebook. Um, we are running Twitter. I am new to all the um, the social media, so I'm, I'm learning new skills all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's running it? Who's, are you running it between yourselves? Between ourselves at the moment, um, you know, going along. Um, we've all got various skill sets and responsibilities, so... We're all trying to to um, yeah, link in. Yeah, one of the beauty about being you know, the backgrounds we all have is we know lots of people, lots of mm. sources. So you know, like coming along to things like this, you know, it's you bump into someone. Oh, I know so and so. I know you know, and you'll mm-hmm. know each other, and it's a wonderful network of support. Mm. So that side of it's been great. So most people, their initial reaction is you're absolutely mad, you know, and and then I'll, I'll, I'll definitely want to support you in some way. So yeah, that side of it is great. Mm. Yeah, you are mad. Um, I I can't like that's the same shit at the start. I can't believe I've met three people randomly and they've come on the podcast. They're doing the same challenge when there's so few people do the challenge. I don't know. I just, when you yeah, you know, how many how many how many teams taking part in the last one? Uh, in, in this December, there's going to be um, 28 teams, 88 rowers from 14. So 28, you know, 28 teams, and I, I you know, I've had managed to have three on, but random. I always feel like I'm doing it injustice by making it by making it seem like everyone does it. It's not the case. Hardly anyone does it because it's 3,000 miles of. Uh, well, at the moment, more people have been into space than um, have rode the Atlantic. Really? Yeah. My God. My God. There you go, yeah. Is there, is there anything else? Um, shameless plug opportunity. Well, where's your, where's your practice? Practice down in Shrewsbury. What's it uh, called? The Dental Spa. The Dental Spa. The Dental Spa in Shrewsbury. Yeah, I mean, nice little practice down there on the outskirts. Of the... Shrewsbury's a lovely place. I was quite mm. surprised how much. I don't think I've been. There you are. Like I was in work. Yeah. <laughs> One of those 3D printed crowns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the invite's there, my dear chap. <laughs> Uh, but no, but my, my focus for the next sort of, I think it's 378 days before we set off, is, is getting the Mavericks, um, Atlantic Mavericks set up. Yeah. I'm ready for that start line, Lagomera. Oh, good luck with it all. Good luck with it all. Privileged, privileged to meet you. And, um, enjoy it. I look forward to having a couple of drinks here on Friday. I'm looking forward to that as well. Thanks for your time, Roy. I <laughs> Absolute appreciate pleasure. It. Cheers. That's it. Another shout out to our sponsors, West Winnesan. Up to 20% discount for service personnel and veterans when you buy a new or used car, private or commercial vehicles at one of their dealerships, the UK's largest Nissan dealership, West Winnesan, Dakota, UK. Also, Team Rubicon. Team Rubicon UK are a disaster response charity who use predominantly ex-military volunteers and civilian volunteers to go and respond to disasters in the UK and overseas. They're trying to raise funds at the moment to help the people of Palu, Indonesia, who are in absolute tatters following the earthquake and tsunami. That has been all of the news. TeamRuboconUK.org. Uh, also sponsoring us today with Camrider Warwick, providing a motorbike training in the Warwickshire and West Midlands area. They are fantastic. They who I train with, Camrider.co.uk or Camrider Warwick on Facebook and on Instagram. Lastly, Becky's Brownies, B-E-K-I for Becky, Becky's Brownies for all your delicious chocolatey legal mouth pleasure needs at your event. Go to Becky'sBrownies.co.uk. I'll be uh, pleasuring my mouth with Becky's brownies this evening, funny enough. I've got some in the house that I purchased last week that I've been saving for a special occasion. And it's podcast day. So, uh, chocolate in my mouth. That is it. Becky's brownies at Cuddy UK. 
Until the next podcast, out. <laughs>